Welcome to the 444th episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney, and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida, back from Leadville, Colorado, where we volunteered for the 100-mile trail race. So before you sign off and say this has nothing to do with plant-based nutrition or health, um... I think there's a lot of things that go with plant-based and nutrition and health with a Leadville 100-mile trail race. So I'm going to let you know all the nitty-gritty details of what we did and what we ate um, and what we observed and how this motivated me, and perhaps it might motivate you as well. So um, sit back and listen to my story. Um, We traveled from Tampa to Denver. And by the time we got a rental car, of course, we were already ready to eat. And we have found a chain that uh, I think they're in a lot of different cities, but they're definitely around Denver called Modern Market. And um, they have options for everyone, but they have a plant-based option that is a seared tofu, um, raw carrots, seared broccoli, and a little soy sauce, it seemed like, um, and seared slash maybe a little pickled cabbage, red cabbage, over a bed of quinoa and rice with a very, very light um, peanut sauce. Absolutely delicious and filling and just what we needed after being in cooped up in a aluminum tube all day long. So that was our first meal in Colorado. Happy to report that hitting the Mile High City didn't bother me at all. Uh, we progressed up the road to Leadville where we stopped at a Whole Food before we got to Leadville. There's not much in Leadville. There's a Safeway, but we stopped and got a Whole Food market. And we planned our uh, upcoming food adventure on the mountain by getting some um, no added oil but seasoned refried pinto beans, some fresh broccoli sprouts, um, avocado, and some oats and that was going to and i'll and i'll show you how we put that together to make um make a lunch got some pita bread there got our fruit some watermelon uh some mixed a bowl of mixed berries so we headed on up to leadville um for um our shifts uh volunteering and the idea for volunteering is one we want to really know what it's like to go through a hundred mile race and observe uh might we might we have the courage to sign up and two if you do have the courage to sign up and you volunteer um, it ups your chances to get that silver coin to get an entry spot into next year's 100 mile race so that was um, the basis for for all of this so the first day we volunteered at the warehouse and that just really amounted to moving some chairs around after the the meeting but we got to go to the pre-race meeting and, um, you know, I have to tell you that um, the Leadville, you know, everybody says, the race directors say that, you know, the Leadville 100 mile uh, race is life changing. Um, and there certainly was a whole lot of life there and challenges there that people overcome. And, you know, um, I, I must say I was moved to tears many times throughout the next three days, um, listening, observing, watching. Uh, the people, the volunteers, uh, and everybody involved with the race. Uh, it's a wonderful community. They call it a Leadville family, and I have to say that it's that. They call it that for a reason, and it's, uh, 
It's not a bunch of hype. It's not a bunch of marketing. Uh, they truly do care. Leadville itself is about a town of 2,000 people. Um, 800, or I think there were 750 runners embarked on the town along with their crew. Typically, people um, bring a crew with them uh, that help uh, with their own nutrition and set up tents and catch them when they fall. They also have pacers. Uh, you can have a pacer that runs with you after 60 miles. Most people that are pacers and not running the race are not ready to run 40 miles straight. So most people have multiple pacers. So you can see how many family members and crew members embark on this little tiny town. Um, but the town seems to absorb it very, very well. Our little hotel had a nice breakfast area where we could get some fruit and oatmeal. And of course we had fruit in the room. Um, we then, um, there's a pizza place in town that, you know, a mom and pop's uh, pizza joint that we could get a really nice, pretty much oil-free pizza with kale and mushrooms and tomatoes and olives and peppers and uh, all with everything we usually eat. And they load it up, you know, so it's not like there's three pieces of whatever. So that was our uh, menu the night before the race. Um, again, we had picked up some pita uh, pockets that, again, no fat. And I made in the hotel. This this time we didn't have a kitchenette, so I had we had a microwave um and a refrigerator so i microwaved some oats and added them to the refried pinto beans added some sweet chili sauce mixed that all together and uh, for the next day we stuffed a pita pocket with that along with some avocado and uh, some sprouts and you might say that's a pretty hearty uh, lunch um, and it was but uh, you know i'll tell you what uh, we we earned that uh, hearty um, lunch. And in addition, we bought some miso broth to add uh, to a thermos with some, um, some rice noodles. And we also had our instant mashed potatoes from Florida, uh, which don't contain any um, animal products. So no butter or dairy, because we knew when we got uh, up on the course, just about everywhere that you look for instant mashed potatoes, they have some sort of milk or dairy added to them. So we decided to make our own. So we had two thermoses, one of mashed potatoes and one of noodles and miso broth. So that would be our food for the day after breakfast uh, for our volunteer day. So to put things in perspective, Leadville sits at uh, 10,100 feet, and that's where the race starts at 4 a.m. on Saturday morning. And it climbs up and down um, the mountains, but the biggest uh, mountain pass that is climbed is what's called Hope Pass. And that's well over, I think it's 12,300 feet um, at the top of Hope Pass. We elected to volunteer at the Hope Pass aid station that sat about 12,000 feet. Um, to get there, um, you can only get there by foot, and the supplies were carried in by llamas predominantly, and I guess a few mules packed some things, heavier things in uh, earlier in the week because I think the llamas can only carry up to 80 or 90 pounds. Um, the water for the race up on Hope Pass was obtained from the streams up on top of the mountain, and it was filtered. The llamas would go down and carry these big jugs uh, with their um, um, llama herder and back up. So the people that had the llamas up there, they, they camped for the whole week up on Hope Pass with the llamas. And, um, you know, quite a beautiful sight that you climb, and you're climbing through pine trees and then aspen trees and around a ridge, and then you come into an open pasture with wildflowers, you know, yellow flowers, purple flowers, pink flowers, 
you can see the mountains up above the pasture with a little bit of snow caps and then you climb up a little bit more and you finally get into the pasture where we stayed at and so they had um, the people that stayed there had tents set up for but for the race there was a medical tent that was pretty um, sparse there's a couple EMTs up there with radios I guess um, and we can talk a little bit about what they can you could talk about what you could do but there wasn't much you could do I guess you if you really plan things right you might be able to get a helicopter in there but it would be very very difficult um, and then there were two tents one where they boiled water with um, gas cooking you know camp stoves and to make the ramen noodles and in west virginia we used to always call them ramen noodles and so we'll get to that later too but so the ramen noodles with chicken broth unfortunately and the mashed potatoes unfortunately with some sort of dairy in them and then they had m&ms of course m&ms are not vegan and they had cookies and i'm sure they weren't vegan and then they had pretzels which are vegan saltine crackers which are vegan some peanut butter which you know it's uh would have been good if they'd had bread, but they didn't. Um, and then they had electrolyte drink with caffeine and without caffeine and then plenty of water. So that was, uh, and I think um, they did not have any watermelons up on Hope Pass ever. So that they had some watermelons at some of the other aid stations, but not up on Hope Pass where we were. So the only way to get up there by foot uh, and carry things on your back or with the aid of a friendly llama. Um, Michael was my llama. <laughs> And he carried our pack with what we ate and what we wore for the day. So we started down at uh, 10,000 feet and it was warm. It was like 75 and it's, and it's weird, you know, coming from Florida at 90, you'd think 75 was cold, but we were closer to the sun. So it was quite warm. So we, we did wear tights. I did wear running tights up thinking that it was going to, temperature was going to drop. And I thought quicker than it did. Um, and a short sleeve shirt. So we packed um, layers, longer sleeve shirts, uh, raincoats, because often uh, times there's a storm that brews in. So we had a light rain jacket, a heavy rain jacket, and a puffy coat for uh, the nighttime weather, which could be any place from 30 to 40. Um, so we were planning on being there uh, until the last runner came through. And we ended up working from about 11 uh, a.m. to 11 p.m. doing that. So we started our hike um, with Michael carrying that big pack, about 40 pounds in a dry bag. And I had a vest with um, uh, about uh, two liters of water in it, um, maybe a liter, eh, just under two liters, I would say, and um, up, uh, up, the, up the mountain. We had 4.2 miles to climb to our 12,100 feet um, aid station. And it took us over two hours to get up with the pack. We started a little bit um, above where the runners would come by, and then we intersected the running, the actual race um, at about the halfway mark and kind of got in the Congo line with people going up the mountain. And we saw a lot. So that would have been going up the mountain. So the way the race goes, 50 miles out, 50 miles back. You go up and over Hope Pass, down to a little town, turn around, come back up over Hope Pass, come back down and wind away, wind around some lakes and through a couple other mountain passes that are smaller and back into Leadville. So we were walking up with racers that were probably... Um, not in the front pack, but, um, you know, I would say maybe a third of the way back. And a lot of them looked bad. 
Um, you know, that it was, you know, like 70, 75 to start. I think people weren't expecting such hot, dry weather. Um, they were dehydrated. They were sweaty. They were pale. Some were throwing up. Um, they were walking, you know, kind of at a zombie pace. Um, and he's like, oof, you know, and it was uh, rocky terrain, about three feet wide. Um, most people were using poles because it was getting rather steep. Some people were stopping for a little bit. A couple people sat down for a little bit um, before finally getting to the top. So already we were seeing, um, you know, what the Leadville 100 mile trail run does to people. Um, the race founder, Ken Clover, gave a speech in the beginning uh, or at the race meeting. And he said, and I thought it was pretty apropos, that motivation is going to leave you at about a quarter mile in. So you got to come up with something to get you through. And basically he suggested that people dig deep and think about Leadville because Leadville was an old mining town that had survived despite the mine being closed. So against all odds, Leadville was thriving. And so could you, if you thought of Leadville and his co-race founder, Mary Lee, um, she was, you know, she was the good cop, so to speak. And the idea is don't let Mary Lee down. She's waiting for you at the finish and don't stop running till you see Mary Lee. And so that was the runner's motivation. And you could see on that hill that motiv motivation had, had left people early. So they were digging deep, um, you know, into that 40 mile uh, area. There were a lot of people that dropped before they even got uh, to go to the climb. So at each aid station, there were, I think, three aid stations before um, the climb up to Hope Pass, and you had to be there at a certain time or they would cut your bracelet and you were done for the day because the reality of it is there was no way you were going to make it up and back in the 30 hours that you have to complete it. So, again, 30 hours from the 4 a.m. shotgun start till you come across the line and Mary Lee says, don't run anymore. Um, we had went to the start line that morning. I left that out. So we got up early and walked over to the start line, uh, at 4 AM, saw the runners take off, came back, uh, took a little nap and got some breakfast. And then we headed up the mountain. So again, with the elevation and the heat, um, and the technical, um, aspect of the race, a lot of people just weren't drinking enough and, you know, it's a great recipe for dehydration. And I think a lot of people did. Pretty much as soon as we got up on top, we started working. Uh, and our job was to fill people's water bottles, to fill their hydration bladders in their vests, um, to find out whether they wanted, you know, electrolyte drink, kind of assess their health, see how they are, uh, get them some noodles or potatoes or whatever we could, sit them down, help them with any blisters or anything that they had. Um, one person with blisters the whole day long. Uh, not, not bad. Um, no... Um, one guy, uh, twisted his ankle on the way up and, uh, the medics just taped it, taped right over his shoe and he, and he kept on going. But when you got to Hope Pass, which was our aid station, you had to be there by four o'clock. After our aid station, there was about a mile or half a mile to the top of Hope Pass. So a half a mile up further before you descended down off of Hope Pass and into another little town called Winfield. And you had to be there by 6 p.m. And then you would turn around, or the racers would turn around and come back over Hope Pass and back down the other side to the town Twin Lakes. They had to be there by 10 o'clock. Now, again, to put it in perspective, when we were going down, 
um, I looked up and it was about a 27 minute pace. Um, you know, so it took us about two and a half hours to go up and about two hours to go down. And we didn't go all the way up. We just went to our aid station. So they had another half a mile. Um, when it got dark, and, I'm, and I am skipping ahead a little bit, I went to the top of Hope Pass with another volunteer to lay out glow sticks around the switchback so people wouldn't fall off the side of a cliff. Um, and it took me and uh, the other volunteer uh, about an hour and hour, hour and 15 minutes to get up and back that half a mile or so. So that puts it in perspective the altitude, uh, the steepness. Of course, it was almost dark then, so it made it a little bit more treacherous. So um, you really had to keep moving. And certainly when the light started to fade, um, you know, people started to slow down quite a bit. I can tell you that the view walking up up to Hope Pass and the view up at Hope Pass is one of the most beautiful sights that I've ever seen. I've been to the Grand Canyon. I've been to Yellowstone. I've, you know, I've been a lot of places. Um, but the tranquility and peacefulness, the colors, the mountains, um, you know, the, just the quietness with a little bit of stream in the background was one of the most, is definitely one of the most beautiful places on earth. Certainly, the is probably one of the most rugged places on earth, um, but certainly one of the most beautiful places. When you're on top of Hope Pass, it gets really windy. Um, the stars in the sky are unbelievable. Um, you could see forever. It was truly peaceful. Um, and, you know, I said when I was walking up that, you know, if that was my last day on earth, I could, I could have said that, that I was very much at peace. That's how close to heaven I felt that day walking up on Hope Pass. I don't know that I would feel that peaceful if I were actually running the race. Um, but walking up, knowing I was just going to volunteer and help people out until 11 o'clock, perfect. It was, it was beautiful. It never rained on us, but occasionally it got a little cloud or a cloud would come over and the, you know, the temperature would really drop. So it wasn't very long to after we got up there that started adding layers. You know, put a long sleeve on, then another long sleeve, then a light rain jacket, then my puffy coat, and um, never put my last big rain jacket on. But um, thank goodness they, they actually built a campfire, and that really kept us warm and also a little smoky. But um, it was kind of... Um, if it hadn't been for that campfire, it had been pretty miserable when it when the sun went down and started getting dark. And a lot of the racers, when they came through, you know, the campfire was so inviting, they just kind of sat down and it was tough to get them going because, again, it was so peaceful. You just wanted to stay there, but the clock was still ticking. So we basically functioned as a pit crew for the runners coming in because the idea was to keep them moving as much as possible to make the cutoff times. And... As four o'clock approached, the people coming up, you know, that if it had taken them that long to get up there by four o'clock, uh, had to keep moving because if they didn't get across the, the line at Hope Pass by four, then their race was over. And the sad part about it is they would have to walk back down uh, and their race wouldn't count and they would time out. If they got past us, again, they got until six to get to that next aid station and then back to 10. So if a runner was someplace in between and timed out, then they would actually have to walk back into one of these little towns to catch a shuttle back to Leadville. So, you know, not only would there be disappointment, but there would be a fair amount of effort for not to some, some respect. 
to go catch the shuttle uh, to come back. And, you know, I mean, we had a great time. Um, it was uh, everyone, all the runners were so gracious. They were so glad to have some help. They were wore out by the time they hit uh, the top of the, of the pass. Uh, we would meet them with water uh, and take their trash and help them, again, to keep going as, as much as they could. Um, and again, as the four o'clock time passed, we had to get them through. So there wasn't, you know, some of the earlier people could sit down for a second maybe, uh, but for the most part, uh, people needed to keep moving. At that four o'clock buzzer, we actually shuttled a couple people across the line just to get them across the line and then filled their water bottles up and gave them some noodles and let them rest a minute before they headed down to, to Leadville. And there was one uh, experience, well, there's several, but there was one experience in particular. Um, there was a, a guy that I was pretty sure that I had met at the Leadville 50 um, that was uh, that had a below the, the knee amputation and he was running with a blade and I thought that that was him and I actually ushered he and his pacer because uh, Paralympic or para-athletes could have a pacer the whole way so I ushered them as quickly as possible across the line and then we you know took care of them and he was sitting down it's like I think I remember you your name is Jeff and he's like yeah my name is Jeff, and I started talking about our conversations, and he was kind of looking at me, smiling, but it wasn't, it wasn't the Jeff. He said, I think you mean the other Jeff. And so lo and behold, there were two below-the-knee amputees in the race, and both called Jeff, and they both knew each other. The Jeff that I knew had climbed Mount Everest. He, this guy, had, Jeff, had not climbed Mount Everest, but he was actually involved in the Leadman Challenge, meaning that he had run already this year the Leadville Marathon, the Leadville 50-mile race, and the Leadville 100-mile bike race, and a 10K, and this would be his last event before he could call himself a lead man. So he just got across the line, and he didn't look too bad, but he was definitely tired and fatigued. And so, you know, we encouraged him, yes, you can, and he had such a positive attitude. You know, he told his pacer, we got to do this, we got to get up, we got to keep moving, we got to get going. Um, and you know, he was a little nauseated. So I said, let's have some saltine crackers, try to, try to clear that out a little bit. And he was up on his way when they left us before they could get to Hope Pass, they had to climb this, you know, probably a hundred yards of these boulder, rocky, pick your spot where you could try to put your foot and have some footing sections before going to the switchbacks, which were narrow one and a half, two feet back and forth with rocks and uh, loose dirt up and forth and when i went up there um, to put the glow sticks up it was hard uh, my legs were burning uh, the steps when you went up the the last couple of switchbacks had these um, natural rock stairs but they were um, two or three you know probably two feet tall steps so it's like a double step and rocks in between so the footing was not easy uh, going up or coming down and then you get on top of the mountain it's cold and you gotta go down the other side so um, but we had a great time talking to Jeff he was very gracious they were they thanked us as everybody did um, again they were so thankful to have a little bit of help and assistance I met a guy that I uh, named Simon that I follow his YouTube channel that does a hundred mile race every three or four weeks, you know, and so we got to talk and it's, he talked about um, 
in one of his YouTubes, you know, that a hundred mile race could be kind of like the stages of grief. And, and, uh, you know, I asked him, it's like, so what stage are you in right now? And he said despair because he'd been throwing up because he got a salt tab stuck in his throat. And every time he tried to eat something, he was throwing up. So he was struggling a little bit, but he still smiled. I still got a picture. And of course I got pictures with the llamas. So as that cutoff came, people were told that they couldn't go any further. Um, they also realized, you know, uh, some people were trying to figure out whether they should, that they were really cutting it off, go any, any further. And we convinced some people to try. Um, and there was a lot of people that we saw that were struggling bad enough that we knew that they probably wouldn't be coming back, that they would get timed out at the next town and probably take a shuttle back. Um, but the determination, you know, was there all the round. You know, it's it's not like you just decide to run a race like this. It's, you know, years in the planning. Uh, typically, people build up from, you know, a career in marathons and then maybe 50Ks and uh, uh, a lot of other races, maybe other 100-mile races before they tackle something like this. Uh, and so there's a lot of time and effort to go in. But just to prep for Leptville is, is usually, you know, nine months to a year. It also means bringing crew, and the crew has to be up for those 30 hours as well. Uh, if people don't finish, you know, they have till 30 hours to finish. And the majority of people finish after um, 26 hours. If you finish less than 24 hours, you get a special big buckle. If you finish at, within the 30 hours, you get a, uh, a regular, nice, beautiful belt buckle. Um, and that's, that is the coveted prize for finishing a hundred mile race is a, you know, a, a metal belt buckle. And this one's, this one's quite fancy. So, but the crews have to, you know, the crews are right along with, uh, the racer as far as meeting them at the various aid stations. Again, it's 50 miles out and 50 miles back. So crews, you know, say goodbye at the start and then get in their cars or get on a shuttle and try to get to the next aid station and try to set up camp or try to pick an aid station and set up camp so that they can perhaps give the runners a change of clothes, uh, the food of their liking, you know, being plant-based. Um, and there were vegans we met up there. Uh, you know, you're pretty much on your own, so you're going to have to rely on your crew to get solid food if you want any. So a lot of, um, you know, people, and, and so the crews had to be up the whole time um, and chasing them around. And when we were driving out to where we walked up <coughs> to the start point, we saw crews that would have to walk two miles dragging wagons full of tents and food and coolers. And there were kids and parents and dogs and you know, it was hot and they were sweaty and a lot of people weren't trained to be a crew member. So, um, you know, I, I felt bad, you know, sometimes looking at this because those guys kind of have it worse because they were, they have the worry of wondering if their runner's okay, where their runner is, when they're going to meet their runner, uh, as well as taking care of themselves. So it's not an easy job and it's certainly a team sport when it comes to getting around a race like this. Jumping way ahead um, at the end uh, when we were at the finish line, uh, we were talking about what happens if we wanted to do this race and could we find a crew that would actually help us. And there was a young man, and I call him a young man because I'm not a young woman. I, he was probably in his 30s. And he's like, no, he said, we had people that wanted, to, we had crew and backup crew. He said, you wouldn't have any problem. And I said, yeah, but 
people our age to find somebody to crew, most people don't, you know, don't have any desire to walk a mile less, you know, you know, all the miles that they'll have to walk to be a crew. And he kind of just looked at me and giggled a little bit. And I said, yeah, I'm old, you know, and so that it was kind of a funny moment. But the, the pressure on the runner is extreme. The runner wants to, desperately wants to finish. You don't want to let anybody down. Um, you don't want to disappoint your crew. You don't want to leave them hanging. Uh, you're trying to meet these cutoffs time. It, you know, it is quite, um, quite a lot of pressure for 30 hours. While up on Hope Pass, we did eat those pita bread sandwiches and those noodles and mashed potatoes, and they tasted wonderful. And people inquired... Uh, you know, what we were eating, of course, we told them we were vegan and a little bit of discussion about plant-based, but not a whole lot. One of the other volunteers was uh, a vegan as well, so it was kind of nice, but, um, you know, he was more of a vegan than he was plant-based. And uh, when I talked about what I did in the practice as far as helping people get off their medication, you know, that wasn't the arena for anything like that because not too many people are in bad health that are trying to do a 100-mile race. So they really didn't have any concept of anybody could be, you know, on medication or unhealthy. So it was uh, a little bit of a generational gap up there to speak, so, so to speak. So by this time, you're either wondering why in the world would anybody do this or this sounds exciting. Way back when, in 2000, when I signed up to run my first Rome Marathon, uh, my nurse Dawn and I went to a meeting to learn about the Rome Marathon, and I listened with excitement and was, yes, I want to do this. This is great. And Dawn was listening to the same talk, and we got in the car. I was like, I'm signing up, and she said, you're crazy. Um, and we've had that kind of uh, I'm crazy relationship ever since. Um, you know, so some people hear this and see, think it's the worst thing that they could ever imagine have to put yourself through, and why would you put yourself through something you're not going to win? You're going to get a stinking belt buckle. Uh, and you're going to be out for 30 hours and drag your family out for 30 hours, and why would you do this? And I think the biggest reason is because you know you're alive when you do something like this. Um, it's a challenge that you don't know you're going to complete. It's a minute-by-minute, be-in-the-moment. Be um, no one was thinking about their job or whatever happened. Um, you might say it's a little bit of a selfish endeavor and because it's all about the racer that day. Um, but I think it makes the whole crew a little bit better because of the support and closeness that comes from working with someone, um, so closely and cheering somebody on, um, but time sort of stands still and there's, uh, people are in the moment and everything else is stripped away. You're in nature with the beauty of it, the sounds of nature, no noises of, planes, trains, and automobiles, you know, um, it is just the streams, the wind, uh, the wildflowers, um, and you against a rough environment. So the runners left that made it at four o'clock and they went up Hope Pass and down the other side. And then we waited, we waited for them to come back. And, um, at about six o'clock, 5.30, we started to see a trickle of runners coming back through. And so then we would meet them on the other side of our, um, our aid station. You know, when they came off the Rocky Pass, you know, welcome back. Welcome back to Hope. And a lot of them were glad to see us because when they got to that point, all they had to do was go down over the hill and they could pick up their pacers at 60 miles. And for the most part, they were, they were going to make it. If they could get down by the 10 o'clock, um, things were going to be okay. 
turns out that if people didn't get off that pass before it got dark, there was little chance that they would be able to descend quick enough to make that time cut off at the bottom of a hope pass going the other direction. So they would call it twin, um, twin lakes inbound. So inbound back to Leadville. So a lot of times people were really tired when they got back to us and that fire was burning and it was starting to get dark and they would just sit uh, and say, it's over. Um, and most of the time it was um, at that point, but they still had to walk down uh, to get the shuttle back to, to town. But a lot of people hung out um, at that, around the fire for a while trying to collect themselves, um, trying to come to terms with not having made it uh, and missing the cutoff. But people weren't horribly um, distraught because I think that when people timed out, they had given it their very best. Uh, they didn't quit. They weren't quitters. They went until they were told that they couldn't go any further. And they laid everything on the line and they had nothing more to give. And it was over. And the majority of them said, I'll be back. Um, there were racers there that had been there many times before, and some finished and some didn't. Um, but, you know, it was, they were still appreciative. Uh, they were still grateful. They still relished the idea. There was no regrets having not, uh, like, they, there was nobody that said, I wish I hadn't have done this. Um, they, were all, they were all better people, changed people, um, had a different perspective for having gone as far as they, they did. Uh, and it was very obvious to, to see their faces. Um, again, some people went down and we didn't know whether they were going to make it or not. Um, at, and then, you know, that top of that Hope Pass, we could see when it started to get dark, little headlamps coming down and you'd see like this little string of headlamps and the headlamps started getting further and further apart as people started to, you know, there was less and less people to come across Hope Pass. And finally at about 11 o'clock, the last person came down. Of course, they weren't going to make it um, back in, but they had to walk back into uh, and down over the hill to get the shuttle back to Leadville. And a lot of them just kind of sat there and, you know, again, hung out for a while. Uh, we headed down the mountain. It took us a lot longer to get down than I thought. I thought we were moving pretty good. And again, I looked down and we were going at like a 27-minute mile pace. And we were tired. I mean, we were on our feet all day. You know, we got up at 4. We volunteered 11 to 11. Walked, hiked up. Um, I was tired. Um, you know, not nearly as tired as I run a race, but, you know, I put in a good day's, day's work. And uh, it kind of scared me a little bit. It's like, if I'm going to run this race, you know, I'm tired just doing this. I, you know, do I have it in me to do 100 miles? And uh, wasn't sure at that point. A lot of different emotions. It was uh, emotionally draining somewhat to see the people that are struggling and struggle with them and all those other kind of things. So it was a, it was a, it was a, a very unique day. We got down uh, off the mountain about eleven. Went back to the hotel and then we got up in the morning to go see the people finish. So we got back to the start line at about eight o'clock in the morning. And we watched the last two hours, 10 o'clock was the cutoff. And we stood with the people's families that were waiting for the runner. We stood with the townspeople that gather around to cheer the runners in. And it was like a festival, people standing and cheering complete strangers in. Uh, we watched people cross the line with their families, their babies, their dogs. Um, 
you know, some people were, were holding back tears. Um, we saw people that weren't, you know, pacers and crews that were exhausted trying to keep up with the runner. The amazing part about the whole thing was that the majority of people ran across the finish line. So the last half mile, you crested a hill, came down, and then had to climb up uh, a probably a quarter mile hill to get to the finish line. And almost everybody started running, and they came across that finish line looking pale sometimes, tired, yes, but they came running strong and got the hug from Marilee and the belt buckle uh, and a pat on the back from Ken. So it was all worthwhile. The last person finished with about a minute to go, uh, and people were cheering from him, for him well up on the hill, uh, you know, trying to, you know, get, to get him across the finish line. Uh, you know, it's uh, amazing how people come together to cheer total strangers and, and, and uh, join in with the joy that they have because uh, they could appreciate what the effort those racers and crews and everybody else had, had done over the race. I saw a quote from an unknown person here recently. Um, I don't know where it came from, so I apologize um, for, I guess, plagiarizing to some degree. But one of the one of the quotes during the comment was, um, "Well, to some degree, will will people focus their attention towards money and material goods so that they may never connect with their inner self? Um, will we be distracted by external pleasure and games?" Um, and never have have the chance of, of being oneness um, with community. Um, and I think that kind of sums up what kind of is happening in the world today a little bit. Um, we're all um, in our own little worlds, in our own little material worlds, social media worlds, click worlds, um, isolated worlds, not going outside worlds, um, not really alive, um, just going to, going through the motion. I don't have time to blank because I'm doing this. Um, a lot of our days are busy work. Um, we might be with our family, but we're truly not with our family. Uh, everybody's doing their own thing. Uh, everybody's rushing. Nobody really spends any quality time with each other. We don't communicate with each other. Um, these crews and racers did communicate with each other, and they became closer because of what they went through that 30 hours together doing. Um, the racers were, it was raw. Um, they were brought, they were exhausted. They gave it their all, whether they timed out at 40 miles, 20 miles, 50 miles, or, or 100 miles, um, they gave it their all. And there was nothing but just um, being in the moment. And I think there's very few things in life that lets us be in the moment for 30 hours and really start to appreciate what, what is real. Um, and I do think that's the beauty of some of these endurance events. It gets people out um, uh, away from all the things that don't matter um, and lets you just kind of you know reset, so to speak, and, and really feel your, yourself become alive and know what you can do. Because I don't think that we tap into at nearly as much as we can do mentally or physically. Um, and certainly all these people, 100%, were outside their comfort zone. Whether it was the guy first across the line or last across the line, people gave it their all. They were outside their comfort zone. There was no given whether people were seasoned runners or first-timers. There was no given. 
uh, they, they put it all on the line. And uh, it was a wonderful thing to witness. Uh, I admire each and every one of them. And as we were leaving the race to go up the street, I heard somebody say, hey, are you that lady that gave me the Raymond noodles? And I looked up and it was Jeff, um, the athlete that uh, had a below the knee amputation that I had scooted across the line at four o'clock. He had not made the cutoff at the other side of the mountain at at Winfield and it had to time out and get a shuttle in. But he was smiling ear to ear with his one of his crew members and he came to thank me for helping him to get as far as he did across Winfield with the little push across the line and some Raymond noodles and electrolytes. And we connected um, and had a little chat and turns out he's a University of Houston grad, go Cougs. His pacer, I'm sorry, his crew member was also from Houston. So small world, two Jeffs, University of Houston, tell me things aren't meant to be. Uh, but it was a wonderful experience. We connected on YouTube. I will link his YouTube channel because, uh, I'm sorry, his uh, Instagram uh, account. Uh, Jeff is, I said, a below the, he has a below the knee amputation. He has changed his life to give back to others. He helps people uh, find prostheses to um, start to do endurance sports no matter what. Um, he works with Challenge Athletes Foundation uh, and a variety of other organizations that help to fit prostheses and to demonstrate that you know you can do anything you put your mind to and um, so he didn't he didn't complete his lead man but I'm sure he'll be back and I'm, I'm sure he'll complete it uh, and again a smile on his face and gratitude all over the place it was a you know a gift to, to be able to meet him and Simon and we watched several other runners that we had helped um, come across the line and we cheered for them just like they were winning the Super Bowl and in, and in my view that was better than winning the Super Bowl so congratulations to all of the Leadville 100 racers um, and uh, you know only thing I can say is we'll see you in Leadville If you want to be involved in getting healthy so you too can run a race in the woods or connect with nature, um, you know, get in shape to be a crew member, uh, want to be a crew member, uh, go to our website, drdelaney.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-L-A-N-E-Y.com and find out how we can help you get the healthiest you can be and achieve what you want uh, through plant-based nutrition and an active lifestyle. We do mobility classes, yoga classes, some of them are Zoomed. Um, but the idea is movement and plant-based nutrition to get people the healthiest that they can be. Um, and we help people navigate choices, uh, whether they have an illness or they don't. Uh, certainly we like to prevent anybody from getting disease, but um, I do believe that a lot of stuff can be turned back. So check the website out. You can email me at jamie at drdelaney.com, J-A-M-I at drdelaney.com and find uh, with any questions that you might have. Thanks for listening. I promise next week I'll talk more medicine and, and more nutrition, but uh, I thought you might like this story. I hope it's motivating for you as it was for me. Thanks. <music>